To Matthew 27, we return this morning. We'll pick up at verse 57. This is at page 835 in your pew Bible, if that's helpful for, for you. Now, the last time we were here, we left off with Jesus still hanging uh, dead on the cross. Victorious, not defeated. Remember, he defeated death by his death. It was the death of death in the death of Christ. Well, let's pick up there in that history, but only after we first pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for preserving it to this day, that it is no ordinary word, though written surely and certainly by men. It was only as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit that they wrote, now may the same Spirit who carried Matthew along illumine us, that we may hear your voice, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 27, beginning at verse 57, we'll read through verse 66. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and lest the last fraud be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. We don't think much about the burial of Jesus, do we? When we talk about Jesus, we talk about what? The cross, of course. We tell people how Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We wear crosses on our jewelry. We hang crosses on our walls. We include it in our artwork in the church. But nobody wears a depiction of the tomb. I've I've yet to see anyone wearing a depiction of the tomb on a gold chain around the neck. Or we talk about the resurrection, and rightly so, of Jesus from the dead. How he rose again the third day, triumphant over death. But somehow the grave ends up being a sort of footnote of the story, doesn't it? Jesus' burial, a mere detail that supports the cross and the resurrection. But, you know, all four Gospels record Jesus' burial. And each gives specific, detailed interest 
and attention to this event. The church, too, has recognized this over the centuries, the importance of the interment of our Savior in the major creeds and confessions, such as the Apostles' Creed that we've just used to express our own faith, or more often, the Nicene in this house of worship. Specific mention is given to the burial of Jesus. It, it may have become a footnote in our thinking, and passages like this one that we've just read, less regarded by us, but according to Scripture and Christian tradition, the burial of Jesus is of great and central importance for us and for our salvation. Before we get to that, I want to spend just a few moments thinking about this man, Joseph. Uh, we call him Joseph of Arimathea. About him we know precious little, except what the Scripture has to say in these brief parallel accounts of his entrance into the story of our salvation in the four Gospels. There's some fascinating legend uh, about him involving the Holy Grail um, and several myths surrounding Joseph of Arimathea that might be of interest uh, to read sometime just for fun on your own, but this morning we'll stick to the facts. Joseph was a Jewish man, we know. He's said to have been from the Jewish town of Arimathea which some have hypothesized may have been the location of Samuel's birth centuries earlier. He was a member of the council, Luke tells us, which is to say that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body, the very body that had pursued Jesus to death, who had ensured his death by pressing and even coercing Pilate into crucifying him. Joseph, however, had apparently not consented with this. Uh, he must have excluded himself somehow from that uh, vote to condemn Jesus because it's reported in Mark that they all condemned him to death and condemned Jesus as deserving of death. At any rate, uh, however that happened, Joseph was a good man and a righteous one. And he was even looking for the kingdom of God to come, wasn't he? A fact that put him in the company of such righteous and devout people in Jesus' day as Simeon and Anna, who met Jesus, remember, with his parents in the temple. We'll recall them again very soon in our Christmas celebration. Yay, Christmas is coming. It is coming soon. Uh, remember Simeon telling Mary that her son was appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. Well, Joseph of Arimathea was one of those ones who rose. But why did it take him so long to rise? Where had he been? Where has jo Joseph been all this Time. Why wait until the 11th hour after Jesus is dead to identify himself with him? Now, Matthew describes him as a disciple of Jesus, but John, you remember, informs us in his gospel that he had been a disciple only secretly for fear of the Jews. That explains, doesn't it, then why Mark in his gospel says that Joseph found the courage to do this, to go and ask Pilate for Jesus' body and to bury him in his own tomb. 
Certainly it would have taken courage, wouldn't it, have, for Joseph to go to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. Pilate, who had already had it up to here with the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, and then to go crosswise with the Roman practice of leaving crucified criminals on the cross to be devoured by the vultures. Uh, but all the more for him publicly now to identify himself with Jesus by retrieving Jesus' body from the cross and burying him in his own tomb. Nicodemus, too, we know, uh, joined Joseph in this task of having Jesus removed from the cross and burying him. Nicodemus, another member of the Jewish uh, council, who had until now been willing to meet Jesus only uh, under the cover of darkness. This is the Nicodemus who provided more than 75 pounds, or around 75 pounds around that of myrrh and aloes for Jesus' burial. This is what Jesus does. This is what the Holy Spirit does to people and in people even people like you and like me, the Lord makes lions and giants of the faith out of folk who, until they met him, had lived small lives, lives driven by fear, driven by the opinions of other people, lives lived by sight. Only measured by what is perceived by these physical eyes only and perceived to be safe and comfortable and immediately to one's personal advantage. Jesus takes and transforms mice into men, fools into faithful soldiers of the kingdom. Without consideration for uh, the view of nor the treatment he would receive from the Romans or the Jews from that day onward, from the civil authority, from the apostate church authority, even from his own family, Joseph aligns himself with Jesus, even a dead Jesus that day. Church history has its own record of folk of such noble faith that shows itself in the 11th hour and against the forces of the day. One John of Clum, who publicly held out his hand to John Huss as he was being led away after his condemnation at the Council of Constance, a gesture that could not have escaped the notice of the authorities. Or Lord Burley, who, when Parliament almost unanimously decided that a dying Samuel Rutherford should not be allowed to take his last breath at the College of Saint And at Saint Andrews in Scotland, responded by saying, "You have voted that honest man out of his college, but you cannot vote him out of heaven." That, dear ones is what the Holy Spirit makes of people, heroic, faithful soldiers of the cross who count personal reputation and social status and personal advantage and comfort, but dung. 
compared with knowing and proclaiming Christ and Him crucified. But for all we might say about Joseph, and we might say more, this history is really Jesus' history, isn't it? And the history of what he was doing to accomplish our salvation. So let's turn our eyes to him. What, what was Jesus doing? How does his burial now fit into his salvific work? Does it fit somewhere in the accomplishment of your salvation? Well, yes, it does. Into Jesus' great salvific work in two ways. First, consider how the grave, how Jesus' burial actually finishes, completes his humiliation. His humiliation. As I say, in just a few months, we are going to muse again at Christmas time over the humiliation that God the Son willingly underwent to become a man. To be born under the law, to live his life on earth in poverty, from the very beginning being laid in a manger, in a stable. Over the past few years together, we've been following in this house Matthew's gospel, the record of Jesus suffering the miseries of a fallen world and the barbs of an apostate church. Just recently, we've seen him suffer and die under Pontius Pilate and under the curse and wrath of God for sin on the cross. And when it seemed he couldn't get any lower than that, he does. He goes to the grave. This dear flock was the bottom rung for Jesus. As if the insults and the indignities that he suffered in life and in his passion on the cross were not enough, he goes even lower. Indeed, this is as low as it gets. Death. From the world's view, this is the failed Jesus. This is the defeated rabbi. The would-be Messiah brought to the end of Himself to the same end to which all human beings and eventually are eventually brought the darkness, the silence, where tongues are silenced and working is no more. This is where Jesus has gone. And don't you just know that the Pharisees and the church rulers went to church and celebrated that Sabbath day that followed with a new spring in their step? Finally, finally after three long years of this upstart, this nuisance, we're rid of him, we're rid of him for good, dead, and buried. Well, you would have thought so, you know, but... uh, it was a nervous triumph, apparently, because as we've just read this morning, the first thing on their minds when they woke up the next day was their need to go and petition Pilate to post a guard at the tomb. The disciples, on the other hand, were in shock. They could hardly believe that after three years of following him, obeying him, listening to him, learning from him, watching him, enjoying him. 
He was gone. Could it really be? What kind of terrible nightmare must this be? They've lost their best friend, their master, their good teacher. Remember, they hadn't a clue. I mean, even for all that Jesus had told them repeatedly and clearly, they still didn't have a single thought in their minds about Jesus rising from the dead, about a resurrection. They weren't even looking for it. This was the final stroke of the humiliation for Jesus. He was dead. Jesus died and died as a man, as a real man, as a genuine man, as you and I must die. And of the factuality of that, there can be no doubt. Maybe you know about some of the various theories that unbelievers hold today that Jesus merely swooned on the cross, that he was in some sort of coma when they put him in the grave, that he did not really die. Or if you've read your church history, you've read about those ancient heresies like doceticism, the belief that God the Son only seemed uh, to take on human flesh and therefore only seemed to die. Well, nobody there that day had even a shadow of doubt that he was dead. When they laid him to rest, they knew it. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they had felt his cold body as they wrapped him for burial. They knew the feeling of death very well. And they knew the sight of it too, the loss of color, the slackness of jaw, all of it that indicate death. To say nothing of the Romans who were experts at death. Pilate, surprised to hear that Jesus had died so quickly, summons the centurion, remember, for confirmation. In John's Gospel, we read that the soldiers coming to break Jesus' legs in order to hasten death was already clearly dead. Yet in a move of macabre, one soldier drives a spear into his side. and Water and blood flow separately, a telltale sign of death. He was clearly and indisputably dead. When my father first started out as a policeman many years ago, it was a common practice that the police were given the responsibility of transporting dead bodies in their squad car. Uh, today they do that with ambulances, um, but back then they transported bodies also in squad cars. Well, one day my dad got a call for a drowning infant, and he raced to the house, only to find that the child had been face down in his bath for a long time and was already clearly showing signs of death. But, and I wonder if it was probably for the sake of the parents, really, my dad administered CPR and that for a long time, hoping against hope to revive the child. And finally, after breathing and pumping and pumping and breathing into the little body, he uh, reluctantly gave up. He wrapped the baby 
in blankets and put them in the trunk of the squad car and started his way to the hospital. He got uh, several blocks away when he heard the sound of crying from the trunk of the car. Immediately, he pulled over, raced around to the trunk, opened it up, pulled the blankets apart, and discovered that the sound of crying was only his imagination. The child was still as clearly dead, and they pronounced him certifiably so at the hospital minutes later. Jesus was certifiably dead. Romans and Jews agreed that day on that point. This was the end of Jesus. Both his enemies and his friends were all in agreement that day about that. Jesus had fallen. This was the height. Rather, we might say the depth of his humiliation. As you confessed a few moments ago, and was buried. No more would the crowds cheer his arrival as they had just five days before on that Sunday in Jerusalem that we celebrate as Palm Sunday. No more large congregations hang on his every word. No more long lines of sick and needy people waiting his help and leaving him leaping and dancing with joy. He was buried, and he would soon be forgotten by all but a few of his closest friends. His burial is the whimpering end of the once so promising life and ministry of one Jesus of Nazareth. And then there's the tomb. There are different ways of thinking about the tomb. We'll think very differently of it in a moment, but for now, as we'll sing together uh, in a little while, consider the fact that this wasn't even Jesus' tomb. It was not his property. It was not specifically prepared for him. It was not purchased by his family. No, like everything else, Everything was borrowed. He owned everything. The Son of God had created everything, so of course he owned everything, but he had nothing. He died a pauper. The one who had to borrow his way through life now borrows his way in death. Think about it. He was born in a borrowed stable. He laid his head in borrowed places in life, no house, no home. To cross the Sea of Galilee, what did he have to do? Borrow a boat. To ride into Jerusalem several days before the history we've just read, he had to borrow a donkey. To celebrate the Lord's Supper the night before in the upper room, he had to borrow a room. And now even in death he has to borrow. He had to borrow a tomb. 
The seal on this tomb, my brothers and sisters, is the seal of his humiliation. And yet that's not all that can be said about this tomb, the burial of Jesus, is it? It was indeed the depth of his humiliation, but it is also the beginning. It is a bridge. No, it really is the beginning of his exaltation, isn't it? Think of this. As they're preparing him for burial, as they're laying him in the tomb and rolling that great stone over the entrance, what was going on? What was going on in heaven? What rejoicing was going on in heaven? What sounds of angel praises and of the saints in heaven who greet him now upon his return from his redemptive errand on the earth. Can you imagine how the the peals of joy and praise must have filled the corridors of glory when Jesus and his most recent convert with him, by the way, the criminal from the next cross over, entered paradise together that day. From earth's perspective, the rolling of that stone over the grave was the end. But it was not the end. As they wept, or rejoiced, as the case may be, over Jesus' burial on earth, heaven rejoiced over Jesus' living soul as he returned there. But you know what? Even on earth... Even on earth, there were signs of exaltation as well. And you can see them if you look closely at this history. I mentioned that the Roman practice was often to leave bodies on on the cross for the birds to eat. At best, a criminal would would have been taken down and thrown into a, a common grave with all the rest, a common pauper's grave with all the other bodies to rot. Not Jesus. In fulfillment of Isaiah's remarkable prophecy, he was buried in the grave of a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, hewn from the rock, a tomb never used before. The grave of Jesus was not a shared one. He was laid alone in that tomb. His body was wrapped and covered with myrrh, And aloes from John's gospel, we learned that Nicodemus provided 75 pounds of them. This was no ordinary burial. Jesus was given a king's treatment in his burial, wasn't he? So Jesus was received in death at one and the same time as royalty on earth in the body and royalty in heaven in the spirit when his human soul for the first time entered heaven. Jesus' burial, you see, is the final step, yes, of his humiliation, but it is also the first step of his exaltation at the same time. I suppose the question in our minds this morning is this, what does that to do with us? And how is it of benefit to us? 
Well, just this. Jesus' burial was necessary because that is the way of death for us. And to conquer death, he had to suffer death in our place. The way we suffer death and vanquish the very death that you and I must die. The law demanded death for sin. And that death is such a death as ends in the grave. Burial is the fullness of death for us, and so it had to be for him as well. He went all the way. As one great preacher put it, the grave is an amen which the human being knows he must utter when death comes. Burial is the finality of death, as we all know, who have stood beside graves. Especially if you, as our family did several months ago in Wisconsin, if you stay long enough at the graveside after the ceremony to watch as your loved one is lowered into the ground. There, and supremely there, you know life is not, it is finished, is truly finished. And it disappears from view. As you turn and you go to your car, you, you know that the separation now is complete. We're waiting that moment with Queen Elizabeth, aren't we? These few days that she spends in state, and now traveling from Balmora to Edinburgh and eventually to Westminster Abbey and there to her grave. It will be the finality. Our father, our mother, our sister, our brother, our son, our daughter, our friend at burial is gone. To be seen no more. Burial is the proof, isn't it? It's the proof. It's a demonstration of death. The Heidelberg Catechism captures it very well in what must be one of its shortest answer questions and answers, 41. Why was he buried? His burial testifies that he really died. Because burial expresses uh, the very nature and the finality of our death so profoundly that Abraham Kuyper could say Christ would not be a complete Savior for us if he had not descended into the grave. You know, someday a bunch of people will gather in the cemetery around a, a freshly dug grave. Several of your friends will uh, gather around a flimsy canopy and um, several members of your family will sit on a couple of rows of chairs under that uh, canopy. And you'll be there too. You will be the one dangling in your casket above that gaping hole in the ground. Some nice things will be said about you. Some memories will be shared, some prayers will be uttered, and then your family and your friends will rise and turn, and they will go to their cars, and they will drive away to continue their lives. 
but not you. For you, it will be the end. But it will not be the end. That's just the point. It will not be the end. And in a real sense, it will be just the beginning. It will be the beginning of your life free from sin and free from sinning. It will be the beginning of the rest of eternity in the immediate presence and sight and sound of your Savior. Death for the Christian is so completely a step into life that we could say that a Christian never really does die. He or she simply goes from life on one level to life on an even more wonderful level. What did Jesus say? Today you will be with me in paradise. And then from there to an even more wonderful level when body and soul will be reunited at, and glorified at the resurrection day to come. All of this is so because Jesus died and dying made atonement for your sin and mine. The death of Jesus was the full payment for your sin and his burial is the seal of it, you see. It's, it's the demonstration of the fact that it's true. It's all true. He died. He really died and was buried. This is why the prophets testified long before to his death. David in the 22nd Psalm, you lay me in the dust of death. Or Isaiah, the prophet of the suffering servant, he was cut off out of the land of the living. They made his grave with the wicked and a rich man with a rich man in his death. The apostles too spoke often of his death afterwards. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son, Paul writes to the Romans. He died for all, he writes to the Corinthians. And according to the writer of Hebrews, it's precisely through death that our Savior has delivered us from the power of death. Even death itself is for our bodies, but an extended rest. Some of you don't get enough sleep. I won't tell you that I can see it in your faces, but some of you aren't getting enough sleep. You're not getting the sleep that you need or you should. In the grave, your body will get a good long nap. While God, as we sing in this sanctuary at the beginning of every new year, will guard your dust. There's no need for us to fear death anymore. Christ Jesus, your captain, has gone before you there. He's gone to the grave, literally, before you. And you have gone with him because you were joined with him, as we've just heard from the Apostle Paul in the assurance of our pardon, with him in his death and in his grave. 
And he is joined with you and will never leave you and will always be with you. Remember what the psalmist says, Psalm 139, even if I make my bed in Sheol, in the grave, even there, he is right there with you. And because he himself descended into the grave, he has sanctified, he has made holy the place where we will bury you or you will bury me. That place is already made holy because he's gone there before us. He's gone there for you and for me and for everyone who dies in him. By being buried, you see, and by carrying us in union with him to his grave and then rising again from that grave, he imparted to every one of us, every Christian, the certainty that our grave will be just as his was. Joy, unspeakable, and full of glory for the soul and a true rest for the body in anticipation of that great day yet to come. And body and soul will be reunited. The death of Queen Elizabeth II and the anticipation of her burial next week causes my mind to return to a, a recent funeral, that of Prince Philip. And you might remember at the end of his dignified and gospel-centered service. You may remember the guardsmen at the end of that service, they first played the last post, signaling the end of Philip's earthly life. But then, do you remember what they did after that? Do you remember? They played, this was amazing, they played the reveille, <laughs> the signal of a new day. That my brothers and sisters, is what burial is to us. <laughs> That's what death is to us. It's the signal of a new day. Philip was genius to make sure that was the last thing in our ears. It's the opening of a new day. Christians have always known this fact. They've always known it, and they've always loved it. And so while our minds are still across uh, the pond... Uh, dare I say, where one of us is more at home than the rest of us here in the sanctuary. But while our minds are still across the pond, uh, let me remind you of this from C.S. Lewis's last, The Last Battle. If you read the story, you remember the Christ figure, uh, Aslan the Great Lion. Aslan turns to them and says, You do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. And Lucy says, we're so afraid of being sent away again, Aslan. And you have sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leaped and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly, your father 
and your mother and all of you are, as you, you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen them after that were so great and beautiful. I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had been but the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. God, my Redeemer, lives and often from the skies looks down and watches all my dust till he shall bid it rise. I shall sleep sound in Jesus, filled with his likeness rise to live and to adore him, to see him with these eyes. Between me and resurrection, but paradise doth stand. Then, then for glory dwelling in Emmanuel's 